There's a lot of talk in the US and other countries at the moment about banning books and book censorship. This is an absolutely ridiculous notion, and this podcast and YouTube channel is 100% against the idea of book banning. It's an insane thing to do. But if your government is preventing you from accessing certain information through geo-blocking or government censorship, Surfshark VPN is here to help. With their No Borders feature, simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers and read whatever you please without any governmental interference. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and read what you please without any censorship or geo-blocking. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie, and in this chapter we have some quite intriguing character revelations. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it is a bit of a doozy for certain characters. If you want to support the show in any way, you can please go to the store down below. It'll not only support this show, but it'll also support the wonderful artists that I work with to create all the comics for these audiobooks. And uh, everything that you purchase on there that contains her artwork will be shared 50-50 between myself and her. Um, she's fantastic. Uh, follow her links in the description. And uh, also, yeah, support the show by buying some cool clothing. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms... But apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. Let's get started. Sorry for the long introduction. In the group meeting, there are gripes coming up that have been buried so long the things being griped about had already changed. Now that McMurphy was around to back them up, the guys started letting fly at everything that had ever happened on the ward they didn't like. Why does the dorms have to be locked on the weekends? Cheswick or somebody would ask. Can't a fellow have weekends to himself? Yeah, Miss Ratchet, McMurphy would say. Why? If the dorms were left open, we have learned from past experience, you men would return to your bed after breakfast. Is that a mortal sin? I mean, normal people get to sleep late on weekends. You men are in this hospital, she would say like she was repeating it for the hundredth time because of your proven inability to adjust to society. The doctor and I believe that every minute spent in the company of others, with some exceptions, is therapeutic, while every minute spent brooding alone only increases your separation. 
Is that the reason there has to be at least eight guys together before they can get taken off of war to OT or PT or one of them T's? That is correct. You mean, it's sick to want to be off by yourself? I didn't say that. You mean, if I go to the latrine to relieve myself, I should take at least seven buddies to keep me from brooding on the can? Before she could come up with an answer to that, Cheswick bounced to his feet and hollered at her. Yeah, is that what you mean? And the other acute sitting around the meeting would say, Yeah, yeah, is that what you mean? She would wait till they all died down, and the meeting was quiet again, and then say quietly, If you men can calm yourself enough to act like a group of adults at a discussion instead of children on the playground, we will ask the doctor if he thinks it would be beneficial to consider a change in the ward policy at this time. Doctor? Everybody knew the kind of answer the doctor would make. And before he even had the chance, Cheswick would be off on another complaint. Then what about our cigarettes, Miss Ratchet? Yeah, what about that? The other acutes grumbled. McMurphy turned to the doctor and put his question straight to him this time, before the nurse had a chance to answer. Yeah, Doc, what about our cigarettes? How does she have the right to keep the cigarettes, our cigarettes, piled up on her desk in there like she owned them? Bleed a pack to us now and again whenever she feels like it. I don't care much for the idea of buying a carton of cigarettes and having somebody tell me when I can smoke them. The doctor tilted his head so he could look at the nurse through his glasses. He hadn't heard about her taking over the extra cigarettes to stop the gambling. What's this about cigarettes, Miss Ratchet? I don't believe I've heard. I feel, doctor, that three and four and sometimes five packages of cigarettes a day are entirely too many for a man to smoke. This is what seemed to be happening last week after Mr. McMurphy's arrival. And that is why I thought it might be best to impound the cartons the men purchased at the canteen and allow each man only one pack a day. McMurphy leaned forward and whispered loudly to Cheswick. Hero tell the next decision is about trips to the can. Not only does a guy have to take his seven buddies into the latrine with him, but he's also limited to two trips a day to be taken when she says so. And leaned back in his chair and laughed so hard that nobody could say anything for nearly a minute. I mean, Murphy was getting a lot of kick out of the ruckus he was raising, and I think was a little surprised that he wasn't getting a lot of pressure from the staff too, especially surprised that the big nurse wasn't having any more to say to him than she was. I thought that old buzzard was tougher than this, he said to Harding after one meeting. Maybe all she needed to straighten her out was a good bring-down. The thing is, he frowned, she acts like she still holds all the cards that that white sleeve of hers. He went on, getting a kick out of it, till about Wednesday of the next week. Then he learned why the big nurse was so sure of her hand. Wednesday's the day they pack everybody up who hasn't gotten some kind of rod and move to the swimming pool, whether we want to go or not. When the fog was on the ward, I used to hide in it to get out of going. The pool always scared me. I was always afraid I'd step in over my head and drown, be sucked off down the drain and clean out to sea. I used to be real brave around the water when I was a kid on the Columbia. I'd walk the scaffolding around the falls with all the other men, scrambling around with the water roaring green and white all around me and the mist making rainbows. Without any hobnails like the men wore, but when I saw my papa starting to get scared, 
I got scared too. That's why I couldn't even stand in a shallow pool. We came out of the locker room, and the pool was pitching and splashing, and full of naked men. Whooping and yelling bounced off the high ceiling the way it always does in indoor swimming pools. The black boys herded us into it. The water was a nice warm temperature, but I didn't want to get away from the side. The black boys walk along the edge with bamboo poles to shove you away from the side if you try to grab on. So I stayed close to McMurphy, on account of I knew they wouldn't try to make him go into deep water if he didn't want to. He was talking to the lifeguard, and I was standing a few feet away. McMurphy must have been standing in a hole, because he was having to tread water while I was just standing on the bottom. The lifeguard was standing on the edge of the pool. He had a whistle and a t-shirt on with his ward number on it. He and McMurphy had got to talking about the difference between hospital and jail, and McMurphy was saying how much better the hospital was. The lifeguard wasn't so sure. I heard him tell McMurphy that, for one thing, being committed ain't like being sentenced. You're sentenced in the jail. You got a date ahead of you when you know you're going to be turned loose, he said. McMurphy stopped splashing around like he had been. He swam slowly to the edge of the pool and held there, looking up at the lifeguard. And if you're committed, he asked after a pause. The lifeguard raised his shoulders in a muscle-bound shrug and tugged at the whistle round his neck. He was an old pro football player with cleat marks in his forehead, and every so often when he was off his ward, a signal would click back of his eyes and his lips would go to spitting numbers, and they dropped to all fours in a line stance, and cut loose on some strolling nurse, just in time to let the halfback shoot past through the hole behind him. And that's why he was up undisturbed. Whenever he wasn't a lifeguard, he was liable to do something like that. He shrugged again at McMurphy's question, then looked back and forth to see if any black boys were around, and knelt close to the edge of the pool. He held his arm out for McMurphy to look at, you're sentenced in jail, and you got a date ahead of you. You see this cast? McMurphy looked at the big arm. You don't have a cast on that arm, buddy. The lifeguard just grinned. Well, that cast's on there because I got a bad fracture in the last game with the Browns. I can't get back in togs till the fracture knits, and I got the cast off. The nurse on my ward tells me she's cutting the arm in secret. Yeah, man. She says if I go easy on that arm, don't exert it or nothing. Should take the cast off and I can get back in the ball club. He puts his knuckles on the wet tile, went into a three-point stance to test how the arm was coming along. McMurphy watched him a minute and then asked how long he'd been waiting for him to tell him his arm was healed so he could leave the hospital. The lifeguard raised up slowly, rubbed his arm. He actually hurt that McMurphy had asked that, like he thought he was being accused of being soft and licking his wounds. I'm committed, he said. I'd have left here before now if it was up to me. Maybe I couldn't play first string with this bum arm, but I could have folded towels, couldn't I? I could have done something. That nurse on my ward, she keeps telling the doctor I'm not ready. Not even to fold towels in the crummy locker room. I ain't ready. He turned and walked over to his lifeguard chair, climbed up the chair ladder like a drug gorilla and peered down at us, his lower lip pushed way out. I was picked up for drunken disorderly. I've been here eight years and eight months, he said. McMurphy pushed backward from the edge of the pool and trod water and thought this over. He'd had a six-month sentence at the work farm, with two months finished, four more to go, 
and four more months was the most he wanted to spend locked up any place. He'd been close to a month in this nut house, and it might be a lot better than the work farm, with good beds and orange juice for breakfast. But it wasn't better to the point that he'd want to spend a couple of years here. He swam over to the steps at the shallow end of the pool and sat there the rest of the period, tugging that little ruft of wool at his throat and frowning. Watching him sitting there, frowning all to himself, I remembered what the big nurse had said in the meeting, and I began to feel afraid. When they blew the whistle for us to leave the pool, we were all straggling towards the locker room. We ran into this other ward, coming into the swing pool, for their period. And in the footbath, at the shower you had to go through, was this one kid from the other ward. He had a big, spongy, pink head, and bulgy hips and legs, like somebody grabbed a balloon full of water and squeezed the middle. He was lying on his side in the footbath, making noises like a sleepy seal. Cheswick and Harding helped him stand up, and he lay right back down in the footbath. The head bobbed around in the disinfectant. McMurphy watched them lift him standing again. What the devil is he? He asked. He has hydrocephalus, Harding told him. Some manner of lymph disorder, I believe. Head fills up with liquid. Give us a hand helping him stand up. They turned the kid loose, and he lay back down in the footbath again. The look on his face was patient and helpless and stubborn. His mouth sputtered a few bubbles in the milky-looking water. Harding repeated this request to McMurphy to give him a hand, and he and Cheswick bent down to the kid again. McMurphy pushed past them and stepped across the kid into the shower. Let him lay, he said, washing himself down in the shower. Maybe he don't like deep water. I could see it coming. The next day, he surprised everybody on the ward by getting up early and polishing that latrine till it sparkled and then went to work on the hall floors when the black boys asked him to. Surprised everybody but the big nurse. She acted like it was nothing surprising at all. And that afternoon, in the meeting, when Cheswick said that everybody agreed that there should be some kind of showdown on the cigarette situation, saying, I ain't no little kid to have cigarettes kept from me like cookies. We want something done about it. Ain't that right, Mac? And waited for McMurphy to back him up. All he got was silence. He looked over at McMurphy's corner. Everybody did. McMurphy was there, studying the deck of cards that slid in and out of sight in his hands. He didn't even look up. It was awfully quiet. There was just that slap of greasy cards and Cheswick's heavy breathing. I want something done! Cheswick suddenly yelled again. I ain't no little kid! He stamped his foot and looked around him like he was lost and might break out crying any minute. Then he clenched both fists and held them at his chubby, round chest. His fists made little pink balls against the green, and they were clenched so hard he was shaking. He'd never looked big. He was short and too fat and had a bald spot in the back of his head that showed like a pink dollar. But standing there, by himself, in the center of the day room like that, he just looked tiny. He looked at McMurphy and got no look back and went down the line of acutes looking for help. Each time, a man looked away and refused to back him up, and the panic in his face doubled. His looking finally came to a stop at the big nurse. He stamped his foot again. I want something done! Hear me? I want something done! Something! Something! 
Sir. The two big black boys clamped his arm from behind, and at least one threw a strap around him. He sagged like he'd been punctured, and the two big ones dragged him up to disturbed. You could hear the soggy bounce of him going up the stairs. When they came back and sat down, the big nurse turned to the line of acutes across the room and looked at them. Nothing had been said since Cheswick left. Is there any more discussion, she said, on the rationing of cigarettes? Looking down the cancelled row of faces hanging against the wall across the room from me, my eyes finally came to McMurphy, in his chair, in the corner, concentrated on improving his one-handed cart cut, and the white tubes in the ceiling began to pump their refrigerated light again. I can feel it, the beams all the way to my stomach. After McMurphy doesn't stand up for us any longer, some of the acutes talk and say he's outsmarting the big nurse. Say that he got word she was about to send him to Disturbed, I decided to toe the line for a while, not give her any reason. Others figure he's letting her relax, then he's going to spring something new on her, something wilder and more ornery than ever. You can hear them talking in groups, wondering. But me? I know why. I heard him talk to the lifeguard. He's finally getting cagey, is all. The way Papa finally did when he came to realize that he couldn't beat that group from town who wanted the government to put in the dam because of the money and the work it would bring, and because it would get rid of the village. Let that tribe of fish engines take their stink and their $200,000 the government is paying them and go someplace else with it. Papa had done the smart thing signing the papers. There wasn't anything to gain by bucking it. The government would have got it anyhow, sooner or later. This way, the tribe would get paid good. It was the smart thing. McMurphy was doing the smart thing. I could see that. He was given in because it was the smartest thing to do. Not because of any of these other reasons the acutes were making up. He didn't say so, but I knew, and told myself it was the smart thing to do. I told myself that over and over. It's safe. Like hiding. It's the smart thing to do. Nobody could say any different. I know what he's doing. Then, one morning, all the acutes know too. Know his real reason for backing down. And that the reasons they'd been making up were just lies to kid themselves. He never says anything about the talk he had with the lifeguard but they know. I figure the nurse broadcasts this during nights along all little lines in the dorm floor because they all know at once. I can tell by the way they look at McMurphy that morning when he comes into the day room. Not looking like they're mad with him or even disappointed because they can understand as well as I can that the only way he's going to get the big nerf to lift his commitment is by acting like she wants, but still looking at him like they wished things didn't have to be this way. Even Cheswick could understand it, and didn't hold anything against McMurphy for not going ahead and making a big fuss over the cigarettes. He came back down from Disturbed on the same day that the nurse broadcast the information to the beds, and he told McMurphy himself that he could understand how he acted, and that it was surely the sharpest thing to do, considering. And that if he'd thought about Mac being committed, he'd never put him on the spot like he had done the other day. He told McMurphy this while they were all being taken over to the swing pool, but just as soon as we got to the pool, 
He said he did wish something might have been done, though, and dove into the water. And got his fingers stuck in some way in the grate that's over the drain at the bottom of the pool. And neither the big lifeguard, nor McMurphy, nor the two black boys could pry him loose. And by the time they got a screwdriver and undid the grate and brought Cheswick up, with the grate still clutched by his chubby pink and blue fingers, he was drowned. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe, because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. Five stars, very much so preferred, but you've got free will, do as you please. Um, that chapter was intense, wasn't it? I'm not going to spoil the book to sort of say how it continues from here, but it looks like McMurphy's been beat. Um, yeah. Um, I learnt this, I think, on some podcast, or maybe it was um, Legal Eagle. But if you plead insanity in a criminal case to, you know, not have to go to jail, but go to an insane asylum instead, it's for the insane asylum to decide, I think it's called a psychiatric facility nowadays, not an insane asylum, but it's for them to decide when you are sane enough to be released to the public. If you get sentenced to 25 years, you get 25 years in the psychiatric facility. But come the end of your sentence, they could also just decide to keep you there because you're not sane enough to be let into the public. And McMurphy has been put into the insane asylum for a crime that he has done, so they can just decide to keep him there. Um, I'm going to be very interested to see how this plays out, and I hope that you are too. The book is really taking off at this point, and I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.